tonight. Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Everybody watching the balloon? Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's just the Chinese spying on us. We'll get to the balloon in a minute. But before we get to the balloon, first let me give you the rules of engagement with the program. You want to send me a text message, text the word Mike or Michael in your message to this number, 33103, 33103. I read the text, I try to read text messages all through the show, but I read the text messages all the time, all, you know, day in and day out. So whether you're listening, uh, whether your affiliate carries the program live, delayed, or you listen on podcast, whenever you're listening to the program, you can always send me a text message because I always read through them and I appreciate the comments and the questions and everything that people raise in the text messages. So feel free to send me a text message to 33103. And then if you want to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, all the social media platforms, you want to see some of the merch we got for sale, you want to... Um, Download the podcast. You want to find out where your affiliate is. All that you can simply do by going to this website, michaelsaysgohere.com. michaelsaysgohere.com. I, I want to st- <laughs> the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kareem Jean-Pierre, the, the White House spokesperson. I'm torn between believing that she, I, I think, first of all, let's just, let's talk about press secretaries in general. Press secretaries in general have a difficult job because despite most of the media generally being lapdogs for Democrats or for whatever progressives happen to be in office, nonetheless, the White House press corps really does want to know what's going on behind those closed doors behind the Brady briefing room in the West Wing. They really want to know, you know, who the president meet with today, even though they can look at the schedule, but who, what's he doing behind the scenes? Uh, you know, what are the discussions about X, Y, Z, whatever the issue might be? And if you've ever watched Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, when she comes out, she she comes out with a gigantic binder, a three-ring binder, and there must be a bazillion tabs in it. And every tab is every potential issue that should ever that could ever come about. Now, most White House press secretaries, those that I've known and those who I haven't, I haven't known, I don't think this is the case with her, but almost every White House press secretary has had almost unfettered access to the president. And the reason for that is very simple. When the White House press secretary goes out and faces that gaggle of reporters, the White House wants that person, regardless of who he or she is, to be able to convey the president's message as succinctly and as clearly as possible so that that does a couple of things. One, it sets, it sets the narrative. So if the White House is trying to stay on messaging, if they're trying to get a particular message through, the best way to do that is generally through the White House press secretary. Now, they'll also use cabinet members. Cabinet members will go out and give speeches. Cabinet members will go out and, and give interviews. But predominantly, it's the White House press secretary. The White House press secretary may not be in every single meeting, but a well-run, a well-oiled West Wing, the White House chief of staff, 
or the staff in general, will always loop around and make sure that the White House press office knows, hey, we were just in a meeting with the president. Uh, maybe the president was having a meeting with you know some foreign leader. Here's a readout from, from that meeting, although generally press secretary will be in those meetings. But my point being, they always try to drag in or, or wrap in the press secretary so that he or she can articulate what the president or the White House's message is about any given topic. You know that for weeks on end now, there have been discussions about the Hunter Biden laptop. There have been discussions about any number of things, uh, in particularly classified documents, in which the answer has always been, I'll refer you to the Department of Justice. I'll refer you to the White House Counsel's Office. Now, it's gotten to the point where it's absurd because some of the questions are, are, are simply this. For example, I, I think this is a classic one. How many documents have been discovered? Or how many documents did the president turn over? How many documents do the, does, does the uh, FBI have in its possession? That one you might slough off. But all the rest of those questions, in terms of just the number of documents, don't have anything to do with the investigation. And here's why. It doesn't make any difference whether there's one document or there's a thousand documents. Whether there's one document or there's a million documents. And the reason it doesn't make any difference is because the mishandling of a classified document, the operative word is mishandling. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's one document or it's a thousand documents. You may recall, or you may not, there was a naval officer who was court-martialed, dishonorable discharge. I don't remember whether he actually did jail time or not. It's immaterial. He was dishonorably discharged. Because he took a photograph on one of America's nuclear submarines, not of any classified portion of it, but I think maybe of maybe standing on, on, on the deck or maybe in, in, in the sleeping quarters or something. He was prosecuted for that. You may recall General Petraeus. General Petraeus, who was, I, I think at one time he was the Supreme Commander of, of NATO. He was the director of the CIA. He's, um, I think he's a four-star general. I might be wrong about that. But nonetheless, General Petraeus, in writing an autobiography, uh, used a, an author who just happened to be his mistress. And so in the course of writing the autobiography, he shared some classified information as she was helping you know, ghost write the book, and he was prosecuted for it. He was criminally prosecuted for it. Didn't make a difference whether it's one document or a thousand documents. The operative word again is Classified document, mishandling of a classified document. So for the White House press secretary to answer whether there's been one document or a thousand documents doesn't really make any difference. But let's swerve a little bit. Let's swerve for just a moment because the Hunter Biden laptop is back in the news again. And just to set the stage for what I want to talk about with regard to the Hunter Biden laptop, which I think a lot of Americans are really missing the big story about the Hunter Biden laptop. 
Kareem Abdul-Jabbar once again refuses to answer any questions about the laptop, which begs the question, why? So for Hunter Biden has written the National Security Division of the Justice Department. I know you like to keep that agency very arm's length. But is it arm's length when the president's son writes seeking writes DOJ seeking an investigation? I mean, it's a great question. Wait a minute. I know you try to keep everything arm's length with respect to the Department of Justice. But when the son of your boss, the president of the United States, writes a letter to the Department of Justice seeking an investigation into the release of information about his laptop. Um, do you have any comment about that? Seems it, It's a perfectly legitimate question. I mean, look, I'm going to be pretty consistent, as I have been. Uh, In other words, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deviate at all. From this podium, when it relates to that, uh, uh, that particular uh, question that you, you're asking me, we have been for the last two years, and I will say to you that that is something for uh, Hunter Biden's uh, personal representative, their representative to speak to. I'm just not going to speak to it from here. What else knew about before it happened? Uh, again, I would, um, uh, as far as that piece, I would refer you to the White House Counsel Office. Uh, and again, uh, don't have anything to add. This is something for his personal representatives to speak to. Uh, and uh, as it relates to the agencies, as you were asking me, look, uh, this is a president, and I said this before, that believes in the independence of the Department of Justice. So that's going to be my excuse. For never, ever, 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 ever asking and answering any question whatsoever about anything that has anything to do with anything. It's gotten to the point of being absurd. Truly gotten to the point of being absurd. So here's, I don't want to bury the lead too much, but here's where we are with Hunter Biden laptop. He has in essence admitted that the, that the laptop is his. Now, Hunter Biden is still denying his four-year-old daughter his last name, but now he's admitting to something that all of us knew all along. The laptop is his. Now, he's doing so as, and I'm going to put air quotes around this, as a legal maneuver. As a legal maneuver? Wait a minute. That legal maneuver is extremely risky. Over the Wall Street Journal, Kim Strassel writes this, now Hunter, Hunter Biden, now Hunter's attorneys have sent letters to the Justice Department and the Delaware Attorney General, Kathy Jennings, asking for criminal probes, including into John Paul Mac Isaac, the owner of the computer repair shop, who gave the laptop to the feds and a copy of its contents to Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani. The letters complained that, quote, Mr. Mark Isaac's intentional, re reckless, and unlawful conduct allowed for hundreds of gigabytes of Mr. Biden's personal data to be circulated on the Internet. That would be from Hunter's very real laptop. So he's complaining and asking the Department of Justice to seek a complaint, or I guess criminal charges. Interesting he wouldn't, that he would um, go to, that the son of the president would go to the Department of Justice run by his father's appointee, the Attorney General Merrick Garland, to investigate something that doesn't seem to me at all to be a federal matter unless you are admitting that, oh yeah, by the way, that is my laptop. Kimberly Strassel continues, the letters complain that Mr. Mac Isaac's intentional, reckless, and unlawful conduct allowed for hundreds of gigabytes of Mr. Biden's personal data 
to be circulated on the internet. That would be from Hunter's very real laptop, Kimberly writes. The letters also demand investigations to a half dozen political figures who access the laptop's information. A separate letter requests that the IRS investigate the nonprofit status of Marco Polo, a group that published the laptop's contents. I don't think you have to be a lawyer. I don't think you have to be a paralegal. I think you can just be anybody that has any common sense whatsoever to understand that this is about as stupid as every other hunter move. From trading on his family name to engaging in suspicious art sales, the, the letters might be his idea of going on offense, now that the Republicans are going to investigate his business dealings, he imagined that it might influence U.S. Attorney David Weiss's ongoing investigation into the very same thing. But what it actually does is land yet again the Biden White House in an ethically fraught sinkhole. Just a gigantic sinkhole. Because this comes down to Hunter asking employees and buddies of his father, the President of the United States of America, to pursue a vendetta on his pampered little butt. It's classic Hunter. It's classic Biden family. Now, Kimberly Strasser writes this. How's it going to look if, at the demand of the president's son, the Justice Department unleashes the full force of the federal government on the people who exposed Hunter's problematic foreign dealings, including documents that raise questions about Joe Biden's knowledge of those affairs? Or if Ms. Jennings, that's the Attorney General in Delaware, a self-proclaimed lifelong friend of the Bidens who once, who once worked under Hunter's brother, Bo, what if she snaps to command? Or if the Internal Revenue Service and all of its baggage moves to strip the status of a conservative nonprofit at the request of the president's son? I think that the laptop is more than just the salacious, salacious bits of information. What is that more? That's coming up next. Text the word Mike to 33103. Those salacious bits, that's next. Don't go away. Hey, Michael Brown here. Let me tell you something. I know that a lot of people don't want to carry uh, a firearm of their own, but if you are loved one want to protect yourself against any attack on you personally or a family member, I want you to learn about Heroes non-lethal products. Heroes, the maker of the award-winning Hero 2020. That's a non-lethal gun that shoots high-speed proje- high projectiles that are filled with pepper powder that explode on impact. All these Hero products are concealable. You don't need a carry permit, and they have a new product called the Arrow. It's like a small remote control that does exactly the same thing. Your wife, girlfriend, somebody could just put it in a purse. They could just put it in a coat pocket. Totally concealable, but they're non-lethal. They give you a chance to escape your attacker. They give you a chance to dial 911. So I want you to get one for yourself today. Go online, check it out at Hero2020.com. That's Hero2020.com. Might use my last name, Brown, for a special discount. Hero2020.com. Some restrictions may apply. I'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. So why is this Hunter Biden laptop story even important? We, we've heard about it incessantly now for, for gosh, a year, maybe longer than that. The reason it's important, I mean, I think, I think a lot of people think that the Hunter Biden laptop is simply about him smoking crack, having sex with a bunch of prostitutes, sexually exploiting his employees, selling access to his father, Joe Biden, to Chinese and Ukrainian businessmen. But Hunter Biden's laptop might matter less for the crimes it revealed than for the potential crimes that may have ensued. No single fact summarizes the real issue better than this one. The FBI took the laptop from that shop owner and six months later told both Facebook and Twitter executives that Russians would begin to release disinformation about Hunter Biden just before the 2020 election. Is it possible? No, let me rephrase that. I think it is possible that the FBI agents that warned Twitter and Facebook executives about a coming Russian hack and leak, some sort of hack operation relating to Hunter Biden, did not know that other FBI agents actually had the laptop in their position in their in their uh, possession and were strictly compartmentalized compartmentalized when you think about those of you who've lived in the world of classified documents or having a top secret clearance for example just because you have a top secret clearance doesn't mean that you're entitled to know everything's top secret secrets in in the classification world, are oftentimes compartmentalized. I can remember many a time being in a briefing at the Pentagon where we're getting a top-secret briefing, just using that generic term, getting a top-secret briefing. And then a briefer would walk in and say, I'm going to be speaking on, and they would give a code word. If you're not read into, and let's just say the code word is blue bonnet. If you're not read into blue bonnet, then we ask that you leave the room. You see, your your clearances only go so far as on a needs no basis. You don't need to know everything. And just because you have a classification, you have a, you have a clearance, doesn't mean that you are going to know everything. So what if the FBI, on the one hand, was warning about a Russian disinformation campaign and didn't know, on the other hand, that, oh, we've got that laptop in our possession. What does that mean? That's coming up next. Don't go away. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome back to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Text your messages. Uh, whatever you want to tell me, say to me, ask me, whatever, text the word Mike or Michael to 33103. And then be sure and go to this website, michaelsaysgohere.com. michaelsaysgohere.com. 
Follow me on social media, download the podcast, any number of things you can do at that website. Yeah, I've got a text message about the Chinese balloon. We're going to get to the Chinese balloon in the next hour. Let's go back to the laptop, because I do think a lot of Americans are missing really what probably is the greater problem with the laptop than just the fact that Joe Biden's son happened to be a crack-smoking, prostitute-addicted guy that won't even let his own flesh and blood use his last name. It's just pathetic. It's truly pathetic. But I want you to think about this. The Hunter Biden laptop story, in and of itself, as you know, often we hear that, you know, well, the cover-up's much worse than the crime. Well, kind of along that same line, it might matter less for the crimes that the laptop itself reveals than the potential crimes that occurred once the knowledge of the laptop became widely known. No single fact summarizes the real issue better than just this. The Federal Bureau of Investigation took the laptop from that Mac repair shop. They had it in their possession for six months. And six months after they took possession of it, they told Facebook and Twitter executives just before the 2020 election that, listen, we want to warn you, that the Russians are going to release disinformation about Hunter Biden. So that when the story, boom, hits the fan, what does the mainstream mean? What does the cabal do? The cabal immediately goes into action. Well, this is just Russian disinformation. How do you know that? Well, we just have our sources. Well, who are your sources? Well, we, we have confidential sources. Yeah, your confidential source happens to be the FBI that's telling you that, hey, um, need to protect Hunter Biden here. Uh, There's going to be some information come out. We can't tell you how we know this, but we think it's Russian disinformation. Oh, my God. It's absurd. Could it also be that these senior FBI officials, including top officials in the FBI, did, in fact, know that the laptop was real? There's a former CIA media analyst by the name of Martin Gurry. He says, I don't think there's any other possibility. They knew about the laptop, or they must have known. And why did they say it was coming in October? Why would you announce, hey, there may be some Russian disinformation, and it's going to be, oh, sometimes we call it October surprises. There's going to be some misinformation, disinformation, and it's going to come out in October. How convenient. Just before the midterm, or just just before the presidential election. Play an alternate history for a moment. What if the New York Post story about the authenticity of the Hunter Biden laptop showing all of the financial dealings between then-candidate Joe Biden, former vice president, former United States senator, former member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, former chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, 50-some years in public service, was on the take. Yeah, let me just put it in that vernacular. Was on the take from our adversaries. It wasn't like he was taking money from the French. Have you heard any allegations of that? Did did the French send him any francs? Nope. Did the Brits send him any pounds? Nope. The Chinese and the Ukrainians and the Russians. 
And I don't know who knows how many others. So this CI media analyst, I don't think there's any other possibility. They knew about the laptop or must have known. Why did they say it was coming in October? They were seeding the ground to say, quote, you shouldn't cover that. It was such a perversion of the truth. And what really makes the episode even more suspicious is that when that New York Post story was abs- was actually published, the wholly accurate, completely unequivocally accurate information from Hunter Biden's laptop that they published back on October 14, 2020. The FBI's formal counsel, you know, the FBI has their own legal teams. A former lawyer for the FBI that ended up being a Twitter deputy counsel by the name of Jim Baker, he told Maybe that's too strong of a term. He urged, he convinced, he argued that Twitter executives needed to censor the New York Post story. And indeed, that's what happened. And then remember, I know this seems like ancient history, but it's really important to understand ancient history. You know, things that happened two years ago, we now consider to be ancient history. Five days after that story was published on October 14, 2020, and the FBI came out and said, oh, this is all disinformation. Remember, it was five days later, October 19, 2020, that those 50, 5-0 former intelligence leaders, intelligence officers, all claimed that the laptop emails had, quote, remember this letter? All the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. But in fact, they did not. They didn't at all. In fact, there were classic earmarks that they were emails authentically belonging to Hunter Biden. And proof of that comes from the fact that Twitter's own internal head of trust and safety, a guy by the name of Yoel Roth, and his team concluded that the emails were indeed authentic when they evaluated the New York Post article. And how do we know that? Because Elon Musk has been releasing the Twitter files. Now, they also based it on the fact that, in part, they had the contract with Hunter Biden's signature that he signed when he turned over his laptop to that Mac repair shop. There's no denying it. Forensic shows that's his signature. The apparently orchestrated, coordinated, whatever, whatever verb you want to use, effort by existing FBI officials and former FBI and other intelligence community leaders, all of these people attempting to discredit the Hunter Biden laptop might represent true election interference. And even worse, the absolute worst politicization of the FBI. Turning the FBI, supposedly the nation's premier law enforcement agency, into a police operation, a law enforcement arm for political purposes. That's something that every American ought to fear. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what your your political affiliation is. 
I don't care how old or young you are. That should scare you. That's third world kind of tyrannical government, little tin horn dictator kind of country stuff that goes on in asshole countries all around the world. But let's go back and think for a moment just about the, the whole episode that unfolded this week with Hunter Biden and the laptop itself. This, this effort by Hunter Biden and his lawyers to get the Department of Justice and the Delaware Attorney General to prosecute anyone who has disseminated information that came from the laptop is actually funny as hell. When you think about it, hey, listen, um, I neither deny or uh, admit that that laptop belongs to me. But I want you to prosecute anybody that shares any, any information that they get off that laptop. Well, wait a minute, bucko. If, if you deny the laptop belongs to you, then you don't have any legal interest whatsoever in preserving or protecting the information that was on that laptop. That's like someone's got information about me or an email that I sent to somebody else, that they sent to somebody else, that they sent to somebody else, and it's now on a third-party laptop somewhere, and they disseminate that email to the New York Times. If... If I go out and claim, hey, you are defaming me by releasing that email, and that email is privileged information off my laptop, aren't I admitting then that it came from my laptop? But I think there are a couple of other things to consider. If Hunter Biden really thinks that the New York Post story or anybody that tweeted out anything about his laptop and the contents of that laptop. If, if he believes for one second that that is the basis for a legal cause of action to sue somebody or to criminally prosecute somebody, then he's admitting that the laptop and that information is his. Why is that important? It details this sordid financial relationship between America's adversaries and a direct connection between those adversaries, money in the millions paid to Hunter Biden and money in, in, in the millions paid to Joe Biden. So here's my conclusion. This president is compromised. So now let's think about the balloon. Huh. Yeah. You can come up with any number of reasons about why you shouldn't shoot that balloon down. Yeah. I don't know what's correct. I do know the balloon is floating at least 60,000 feet in the air. So rough math, that's what? 10, 12 miles above the surface of the earth. But some stories have it up as much as 120,000 feet in the air. So you blow that thing up, and you think about it, everybody says, well, we can't do that because, well, we briefed the president that we can't contain or we can't, we can't mitigate the debris field. And I've heard everything from it's 
the, the, the payload beneath it is the size of three school buses. Maybe we should ask Kamala Harris. She knows about school buses. That it's uh, either uh, three school buses or it's two school buses, whatever it is. And that it might cover a debris field of 40 miles by 40 miles. Wait a minute. You could have shot it down as it was coming across the Aleutian Islands. Uh, Canada, you could have shut it, shot it down when it was crossing over into, oh, I don't know, maybe the Northwest Territories or somewhere. We could have shot it down over Montana. Yeah. Um, could have shot it down coming down over Wyoming. And then I find it hard to believe, and maybe it's true, but I find it hard to believe, that we don't have the wherewithal to, put it crudely, blow it to smithereens, so that whatever the, whatever the debris field is, that debris field is just little chunks of stuff that falls out of the sky all the time anyway and burns up in the atmosphere. You know, I told my local audience in Denver this past week that, and I think it was March of 2003, the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster occurred. The Columbia Space Shuttle disintegrated upon reentry, and the debris field covered literally every state from California to Louisiana, primarily in Texas. Debris fell from the sky. It was six months later, people were still farmers or people camping or hiking, whatever, would still find pieces of that debris of the Columbia Space Shuttle in parts of Texas or New Mexico or Arizona. An entire space shuttle, much larger than three school buses, spread out all across those southern tier states. Not one single casualty. Not one. And we're scared to blow a balloon out? Blow a balloon out of the sky? Let me ask you this question. What kind of intelligence, if indeed it's a Chinese spy balloon, what kind of intelligence are they looking for? What have they learned from it? Let's answer that question next. Hey, I want you to think about something. If you want to protect you or you, you know, your assets, and I can tell you, I'm telling you this as, as a former lawyer, that if you want to protect all of your assets, one of the things that you've got to do is to figure out a way to develop more than just a trust more than just estate planning. Because as I used to tell my clients all the time, anybody can sue anybody for anything. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean you're going to be liable, but you can eat up a lot of legal fees trying to defend your assets. I want you to know about Blake Harris. Because Blake Harris, a great lawyer, helps high net worth individuals set up and protect their assets and their money from those who might try to take it in a lawsuit. Blake Harris is able to add additional layers of security and protection over your hard-earned assets so that you're don't that that you not going to get if you have a traditional trust or you have a, tra- a traditional estate plan. This is not about tax evasion. This is about protecting your assets and making certain that what you've earned stays yours and you don't have to worry about people suing you. This is about making sure that you have your money when you want it, and Blake Harris can show you how to do that. I know you have questions, but... If you want a free consultation, I want you to call Blake Harris right now. 
The phone number, 833-ASK-BLAKE. That's 833-ASK-BLAKE. Or check him out online. Go to this website, blakeharrislaw.com. That's blakeharrislaw.com. The balloon and what they're looking for, that's next. Hey, welcome to The Balloon Show, the weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. So what's, what's the real intelligence that the, that the Chinese communists are learning from Americans? We're scared to do anything. Now, several of you sent me text messages that are, are absolutely spot on. Uh, Governor number 343047 uh, says, that Michael, they don't have to shoot, they don't have to blow to smithereens. Why don't they just puncture the balloon and let it float down? Then we could examine whatever the payload is. Mike, the balloon is a fiasco and a growing list of offenses this fool has committed that warrant impeachment. Mike, number 9683. Mike, that damn Chinese spy balloon needs to be shot down. It should have been shot down was on, in, over Montana. The chances of it hitting anybody would be like one in a hundred billion dollars. Yeah, I, I love this text message. Because there will be people over here, well, the chance is one in a hundred billion. Yeah. Go buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> Your chances are better at a lottery ticket. Let, let's give it some perspective. You, you think about, well, let's first answer the question. What do you think the intelligence is that they're gathering? Now, they say it's a weather balloon. Maybe they're just trying to figure out, you know, where the trade winds are blowing, you know. Where, where's the Gulf Stream going? The jet stream. The Gulf Stream, I would the jet stream. Where's the jet stream going? Well, I don't think that's it at all. I think they're testing our metal. Not M-E-T-A-L, M-E-T-T-L-E, our metal. Our willingness to do anything about it. When you, when you think about it, so the, um, the likelihood of it hitting anybody in Montana was remote at best. Let's say it was a one in a hundred billion. People understand what that means, so they're scared to death of it. And the Chinese are learning that hey, we won't do anything about it. Their buy off of Joe Biden paying off well. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Appreciate you tuning in. So here are the rules of engagement. They're pretty easy to follow along. You should be, you should have these memorized by now. First and foremost, you text the word Mike or Michael in your message to this number, 33103. 33103. Text me whatever you, you know, questions, comments, complaints, whatever. I read them all. Second, if you want to follow me on social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, you want to download the podcast, you want to find that you're a local affiliate, 
you want to find out what time they are, the program, any of that stuff, stream us live. You can do all of that by simply going to this website, michaelsaysgohere.com. michaelsaysgohere.com. One of the big bugaboos, in color, it's not just Colorado, it's all over the place, are the so-called red flag laws. And the red flag laws are being pushed as a, a, a way to prevent suicides, a, a way to you know, take guns away from people that might be a danger to themselves. They're, they're nothing more than an attempt to open the door just a little bit further to gun control or gun confiscation. But the real problem that I have with red flag laws are the unintended consequences and the potential abuse that all of these laws end up generating. And every once in a while when I'm doing, you know, show prep throughout the week, I, I come across stories that, as I've told my local audience, I oftentimes, I, I put that story aside because it's so outrageous that I think, well, it's either a parody, I have, you know, someone's trying to pull my leg, not me in particular, but just in general, and, and I, I need to let that simmer for a while. I got a little saute a little bit. And I'll come back to it, and I'll dig in it again. I'll start checking links. I'll try to cross cross-check stories and see if it's really who else is reporting it. See if I can find some original reporting. And this is one such story. It's, a, it's, an, it's an absolute case study of how the justification for these wellness and red flag laws can be easily abused. And it doesn't have to be the cops. It doesn't have to be a prosecutor. It can be friends and family. If you are one of the estimated up to, and I think this number is conservative, but if you're one of the perhaps as high or higher 100 million gun owners in this country, or if you live in one of the homes in this country, 45% of which have a gun inside the home, you're probably aware of these so-called red flag laws. They, I always like it when they call them well, these are common sense measures. Anytime anybody says to me that this is common sense or these are common sense restrictions, we believe in the Second Amendment. We're not trying to take away your guns for hunting or for self-defense. These are just common sense things. I think bullcrap. Well, I don't really think bullcrap. I think something else, but I can't say it. We now have these kinds of statutes in the District of Columbia and 19 other states. The laws provide a method, ostensibly so, for identifying and then disarming someone who might potentially be a threat to themselves or to somebody else. Now, in principle, those laws might seem reasonable on the surface. Michael, all we're trying to do is keep somebody from hurting themselves or harming somebody else. I get what your purpose is, and I get that it might seem reasonable, but in fact, those kinds of laws, like almost any kind of law, is subject to serious abuse by anybody who has the, the desire, the wherewithal, the tenacity, and, and the gumption to go ahead and to abuse that law and are subject to serious abuse by anybody that wants to have the cops target somebody they don't like. It's, um, oh, and I just had a brain fart. The um, 
the tactic where you call in a fake 911 call. There, there's a name for it, and I can't think it off the top of my head. Damon, if you think about what it is, whisper it to me. It, it's where someone will uh, call 911, and they'll say, Michael Brown's in his house, and he's got a gun to his head, or he's pointing his, he's pointing a gun at his wife, and he's threatening to kill her, and you know, and it's like you got to get there immediately, and they, and they, and the cops come rushing in, and I'm sitting there in my underwear watching television, watching reruns of Bonanza, and it's like, what, what the hell's going on? If you want to get cops to take somebody's guns away or to put them in a mental institution. These red flag laws are just right, just what you're calling for. Allow me to introduce you to something that is a corollary to the red flag law. You might say it's a red flag law's cousin. The police wellness check. Now, I would say that 99.9% of police wellness checks are legitimate. But it's always like somebody, it's like, it's like an engineer telling me, you know, we've designed this to be functional 99% of the time. Okay, let's just say it's, uh, it's an elevator. Now, I'm not afraid of elevators, and if, if you are, then I, I hate to make you think about this. But I don't know what the fail rate of an elevator is. But if, if you were in, let's say you're in Manhattan, or you're in downtown Chicago, downtown L.A., down in Houston or downtown Denver, for that matter. And you're getting on an elevator that goes up, let's just say, 30, 40 stories. And before you got on, the, the, an engineer said to you, yep, yeah, you know what? This is a damn fine elevator. Yep. It's guaranteed to not fall 99% of the time. <laughs> Would you take the stairs? Because that 1%, may be very unlikely to happen that 1%, but it's going to cause you to pause and think, oh, wait a minute. How many times has this elevator gone up and down? How many thousands of times has it worked? Are we getting close to that 1% where it won't work? That's what I mean about police wellness checks are 99% of the time. You're concerned about an elderly neighbor next door that you haven't seen out on their front porch, someone that you haven't, you know, you haven't got a text message from incessantly, you know, over the last five minutes. So you ask the cops to do a wellness check. Hey, I'm, I'm really concerned about Michael Brown. He hasn't, he, he, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't bitched about something in, in, in almost a day. Better do, you better go check on him. So the county sheriffs get that call and they'll drive over to my house and they'll knock on the door and they'll peek in the windows. They'll walk around. They'll check, they'll check all the windows peek in all the windows, see if they can see me laying around or whatever, you know, doing a wellness check. They can't see anything. At some point, they might actually try to break into the house to do the wellness check, to make sure I haven't fallen and I can't get up. And my life alert or whatever it is won't, I can't, I've fallen and I can't get up. Wellness checks are common, they're common all over the country. And they, they, and they most often involve checking in with somebody who is elderly Somebody that's disabled, somebody that lives alone, somebody that you know maybe lives on your street that you know that you, you don't even know if they have any family or not. And usually you see them out walking once a day. You haven't seen them walk for four or five days, and so you're concerned. But you don't know who to call, so you call the cops. 
and on and honestly to be objective frequently those wellness checks result in really much needed assistance to an individual who actually happens to be in distress i can't recall but i'm sure you have well, i shouldn't say sure but i imagine that you've had someone that you have called on to have a wellness check done. Removing a person from a house during a wellness check is generally associated with a serious medical condition. The wellness check is conducted. You go in. You find someone in, in, in physical distress. They've had a heart attack. They've had a stroke. They, they, they literally have fallen, and they literally cannot get up. So EMTs are called, and they ambulance shows up, and they're taken out of the home and taken to a hospital, and everything turns out fine. Wellness checks are almost never court-ordered. But involuntary committal does require a court order. You call a wellness check. Let, let's just use me for an example. So I've fallen down the stairs. I've you know, for, I mean, this is not reasonable, but let's just say I've fallen down the stairs and I've broken a leg and I can't, I can't pull myself over to the desk in my studio or my office to reach up to grab a cell phone or a laptop or an iPhone or something to dial 911. I just physically can't do it. And so wellness check is called in and they see that I've, harmed myself. I've hurt myself. I haven't harmed myself. I've hurt myself. And so they call an ambulance and take, they take me to a hospital. I freely, I would freely go do that. There's a big difference between a voluntary committal to a medical institution and an involuntary committal. That involuntary committal does require a court order. Now, there have been a lot of really high-profile wellness checks. Britney Spears. But good intentions aside, some checks turn deadly for the person the police are checking on. Yeah. It turns deadly for the person that the cops are checking on. Others, sometimes, actually result in assaults on the cops. I've often described, I've, I've told you before that every Friday, you can find these on the website, on the podcast, every Friday at 8 a.m., I do what are called taxpayer relief shots. And I've often just, you know, because I'm, I'm adamantly opposed to no-knock warrants. Because no-knock no, no warrants, I think not only are unconstitutional, despite what the Supreme Court may, may say, I think they're unconstitutional. It is not a reasonable search and seizure. It is not a legitimate Fourth Amendment warrant. No knock. I oftentimes take medication to help me sleep. I'm a horrible sleeper. Can't slow my brain down. Can't, I just can't get my brain to stop at night. So when I'm really kind of just laying there awake, I might take an Ambien or something to help me, to help me kind of doze off to sleep. Well, if, if I'm in an ambient sleep and I hear the front door crash in, I may hear somebody yell, police, police, police. 
But I may not actually comprehend that that's what they're saying. And I'm also maybe aware enough that that's a tactic that oftentimes gangsters will use, gangbangers will use, trying to get, you know, into the house without being fired upon. And so the likelihood of a cop getting shot by me in the middle of the night when I'm on an ambient and they just come bashing into the house yelling cop, 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 by the time they get to my bedroom door and open my bedroom door, I might have a three fifty seven pointed at that door and boom, fire away. Cop ends up dead. Is that a legitimate self-defense or not? Yeah, it depends on the circumstances. But my point is this. Sometimes, despite good intentions, whether you think a no-knock warrant is a good intention or not a good intention, nonetheless, sometimes those don't turn out too well. And I've got a story that, well, speaking of unintended consequences, I hope it makes you think twice about wellness checks. But before we get to that, if you or a loved one want to protect yourself against an attack on you personally or a family member, but you're not comfortable like I am carrying a firearm, then I want you to learn about these Hero non-lethal products. Hero is the maker of award-winning Hero 2020 and the new Arrow. Both of these are, you can conceal carry them. You don't need a carry permit. Both of them, can you, you fire both of these devices. They cover your assailant in this really thick, gooey pepper gel that causes your assailant to just drop writhing in pain. Gives you time to escape the situation. Gives you time to call 911. Gives you time to get out of that dangerous situation. And they're non-lethal but it allows you to defend yourself from a distance. I've got them all over the place. I want you to get one today for yourself, or maybe a spouse, maybe a colleague, somebody that you know needs that kind of self-defense and they don't want a gun. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this website, Hero2020.com. It's Hero2020.com. Put in my last name, Brown, for a special discount. Hero2020.com. Check out the Hero2020 and check out the Arrow. State restrictions may apply. This wellness check gone awry next. Hey, welcome back to the weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Now, the the word I was looking for was swatting. That's the fake... 911 swatting. And in fact, there's a great text message. This comes from uh, Governor 0238. Michael, I, I had a wellness check called on me once. As soon as they found out that I had guns in the house, it became a command center situation where they brought an RV in and a huge police response. They made me walk out of the house, hands in the air, in reverse. I was never charged with anything, never arrested, never booked. Highly irresponsible what they do to homeowners in Aurora, Colorado. This is my this is what I mean about these wellness checks can go wrong. They can go awry real quickly. And the story I'm about to tell you is why I am so adamantly opposed to these red flag laws and so adamantly opposed to this idea that these wellness checks are, well, they're just they're just wellness checks. There's nothing wrong, Michael. Why are you so uptight about this? 
read a story this week about a case in Alaska, a wellness check that at its root was the result of religious discrimination. There is an Alaska state senator who tells this story to his constituents. And I've done checking in all the papers in Alaska. Yeah, this is a true story. Mary Fulp is a principal at something called Colony High School. And in fact, this year, she was the Alaska Principal of the Year. <laughs> I, don't, I'm, I don't mean to laugh, but this story is so ridiculously absurd. She was removed from her home by Alaska State Troopers and involuntary committed without a court order. Now, apparently, one of this principal's siblings was concerned, really concerned, because she put a message about her faith on Facebook. Wow. What'd she say? I love Jesus? I love Allah? Huh? What? I love Moses? What was it? There's a reporter by the name of Art Chance up in Alaska who describes the incident this way. Visualize yourself sitting comfortably in your home just before noon on a Wednesday. An Alaska State Trooper knocks at the door. You answer. The trooper tells you he's at your home for a welfare check. Now, you don't appear to be in danger. You don't appear to be in danger or even a resident of Crazy Town. So the officer thanks you for your time, and the officer goes on his or her way. Oh, you think that's the end of the story? You think that's it? No, 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 no. I'm just getting started. You see, this is a wellness check that goes completely wrong because a few hours later, there's another knock at the door. What happens next will help you understand why red flag laws, swatting, and all of these wellness checks are rot. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie, now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome back to Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Talking about wellness checks and these red flag laws. And there's a story out of Alaska that just makes my blood boil. And it's an example of how, you know, okay, so, Michael, 90, 90%, 99% of the time, these things are okay. You're the one then, the 1% of the time that they go downhill, it's you. Now tell me anything about it. So I was saying, this reporter in Alaska reports it this way. Visualize yourself sitting comfortably in your home just before noon on a Wednesday. An Alaska state trooper knocks on your door. You answer. The trooper tells you he's there for a welfare check. You don't appear to be in danger. You don't appear to be a resident of crazy town. So the officer thanks you for your time. Officer spins around, 
gets back in his patrol car, goes away. Except, and here's where it goes crazy. The troopers later confirmed after the first visit, because there was a second visit, that after the first visit, that this school principal, Ms. Fulp, was not, was, quote, not exhibiting signs of grave disability from a mental health issue and was not likely to cause serious harm to herself or others and therefore didn't, did not meet the conditions for emergency detention under Alaska Statute 47.30.705. But the reporter continues the story this way. A few hours later, <laughs> it's always a few hours later, there's a knock at the door. Now there are two troopers present. There are now two troopers on your front door, at your front stoop. And they're there with a family member. And the family member asserts that she has a court order to have you detained and sent for psychiatric evaluation. Now, in my case, I'd be like, <laughs> surprise, <laughs> this is my family. They all think I'm crazy. Here's what really pisses me off. The Alaska State Troopers accepted the authority of such an order and without resistance lead her away in custody to a hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. You endure the indignity of having your personal possessions confiscated. You are stripped of your clothing. You are dressed in a hospital gown. A psychotropic drug is administered to you. You are detained for three days, 72 hours said the famous 72-hour hold. And then, for those of you who are old enough to remember uh, Gilda Radner as Emily Latella on Saturday Night Live, never mind, never mind. This woman, Mary Fulp, was removed from her home without cause and subjected to a horrifying detention. Suzanne Downing, another reporter, was told by Mary Fulp's lawyer she was forced into a mental health facility without a court order. Now, remember, the family showed up. This is where I'm really pissed off at the state troopers, too. That would be like, hey, we have a, we have a warrant to search your house. Really? Can I see it? Um, we're here. Uh, this family member has a court order to have you detained and taken to a mental facility. Really? Can I see it? Here's, here's some free legal advice. Somebody shows up at your door. I don't care. I don't care how many guns they have. We have a we have a warrant to search your house. Okay, let me see it before you come in. In fact, step out onto your porch, ask to see the warrant and read the warrant before you let them in. And someone shows up and says, "We have an order to detain you and take you to a mental health facility." You say, "Let me see the blankly blank report." So back to Suzanne Downing, the other reporter. She reports the story this way. Mary Fulp was forced into a mental health facility without a court order by those whom she and the community placed their trust, the Department of Public Safety. Additionally, they told this reporter, the Department of Public Safety has candidly acknowledged their officers should have never forced her into a 72-hour mental health commitment. To DPS's credit, they have already conceded that their officers did not follow procedures 
to assure that a judge had actually made a determination that she was a risk of harm to herself or others to justify the deprivation of her freedom. At no time did she pose a risk of harm to herself or others, and she could have never been forcibly placed into a mental health facility. Talk about a unfortunate comedy of errors. Shame. I mean, first of all, shame on the family. Because, and I'll tell you what this woman's accused of in just a minute, that made her family think she was crazy. I'm telling you, if what she did makes her family think she's crazy, I might want to check before I leave the studio today because my family might be after me. They might be after you. You better watch out. But shame on these state troopers. Let me just say right now, to because I know cops listen to this program, don't you ever go issue or detain someone on the word of a family member that they have a court order that says you can detain them. You have committed, you have committed law enforcement malpractice by not doing so. You're relying on the word. Maybe, you know, maybe who the crazy family member is, is the family member that's standing next to you, not the person you're there to arrest and detain. Colonel James Cockrell, the commissioner of the Alaska Department of Public Safety, issued an apology. Well, holy theses, Batman. Really? That's what you get? After putting a woman in a, in a mental institution and forcibly given psychotropic drugs and held against her will for 72 hours? Hey, we're sorry. He issued the apology after determining that his troopers acted on a family member's claim of a court order that the Alaska court system has confirmed was never issued. What the family member produced was a forged document. Indeed, Colonel Cockrell, Cockrell says that his troopers should have done their due diligence. Just, I, I want to cuss so badly on here right now. Should have done their, my troopers should have done their due diligence to ensure that that was a proper legal document. No feces, Sherlock, really? He says, we made a drastic mistake here, and I've ordered a review of our policies and procedures to ensure this doesn't happen again. That's a little too late for that, don't you think? Mary Phelps' lawyer also noted, to compound matters, the mental health facility knew it had no valid court order to hold her. This traumatic experience is a free citizen's worst nightmare, and this broken system has caused her and her children inexcusable and immeasurable harm. Now, the wellness check that these troopers were conducting was connected to a red flag provision in Alaska law that was passed last year concerning involuntary commitment. And the Latin phrase is ex parte. E-X-P-A-R-T-E. It means one side. A one-sided application are allowed if a court finds cause and issues an order. In other words, without you ever having the opportunity to have counsel present, a family member, or just your crazy neighbor that doesn't like you, can walk in ex parte on their own without you present and get an order and 
troopers will come and arrest you and take you to a psychiatric hospital on that person's word without you having the opportunity to challenge it. I hate these laws. You, do, do you gather I hate these laws? I hate these laws. Fact is, the family member, may, I'm, I'm, I was going to say this facetiously, but I'm not. They're upset with her. The family is. Because apparently, she posted something in face on Facebook that had to do with her religious beliefs. And she apparently believes in the speaking of tongues. Hmm. Well, I make no comment for or against the speaking of tongues. I'm agnostic about it. Some people believe it. Some people don't. Some people do it. Some people don't. Whatever. I don't think you're crazy if you do. Sometimes people listen to this program and say, I'm speaking in tongues. You think so? Then go get a wellness check on me. Go get a court order to have me confined. I could use 72 hours off anyway. Yeah. Good 72 hours off. Nice hospital bed. You know, a view of the a view of the front range, the mountains, the you know, the purple mountains, majesties. The, you know, we got a lot of snow up in the mountains right now. It's beautiful. You know, 72 hours of just sitting, staring off into space. Oh, maybe I'd see the balloon if I'm staring off into space. We have become so obsessed in this country of nosing into other people's business, even family members. I have a, I have a soon-to-be 92-year-old mother. She's, she's doing okay, but age is beginning to take a toll on her. I would never, ever, and I think this is just because of, of the small town that I grew up in where she lives. I know too many people. So I could ask, a, I could ask any number of people, hey, you know, I haven't heard from mom in a couple of days, or hey, I just tried to call mom, and she's not answering you, because mom, my mom still has a landline. Yeah. Uh, she's not answering her landline. She's not answering her cell phone. She's not responding to text messages. She's not responding to emails. Um, so, uh, Billy Bob, could you uh, could you go down the street and check on her? Just knock on the door, check in the window, see if see if mom's okay. I don't think, even though, in my little town, hometown, I think most of the cops probably know her too. I still don't think I call the cops to do a wellness check. I call somebody else. Maybe you're not in that position. Maybe I'm just fortunate that I'm in that position. But the last person I want knocking on my door to do a wellness check, I don't even care if it's cops I know. In fact, probably worse off if it is cops that I do know. Because most of the cops that I know probably think I am crazy. and probably do want to have me confined for a while. Get me off the air for a while. They're trying to fix these holes in Alaska's laws. But for every hole they fix in Alaska's laws, there are 49 other states that have laws. Some red flag laws, some wellness check laws. Almost every state has a wellness check law. But these are the unintended consequences of a society that is so convinced 
that they know better. Everybody knows better how you should live your life. You know, I hate it when people tell me, you know what, you need to lose some weight. You need to gain some weight. I, I, I literally hear both things from friends. You look like you've lost some weight. Well, thank you. Um, you look like you put on a few pounds. Really? Because just two hours ago, somebody told me they thought I had lost weight. So who's lying to me? You or the per- or the other guy, or the other person? We just live in this bizarro society where we want to tell everybody else how to live their life, and now we've put in legal mechanisms where we can kind of force that to happen. Stop it! Just stop it, okay? No. <laughs> the. One last point before we move on. You know, she posted this to Facebook. So even though I've, you know, I've got a Facebook account, I'd encourage you to go join my, my private little group on Facebook. It's at facebook.com slash Michael D. Brown. But I promise this. Now, sometimes people post things on my Facebook page that Facebook takes down. But if you post something on my Facebook page that I think is just back crap crazy, I'll leave it there. I won't take it down. I'll let Facebook take it down, but I won't take it down. You know why? Because if you're just that crazy, I want everybody else to see how crazy you are too. But I'm not going to get a wellness check, and I'm not going to get a red flag law issued against any of you. I hope you'll extend the same the same courtesy to me, all right? Hang tight. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, the, um, the health care in this country, is absolutely, oh, we were told it was going to be cheaper, right? I got a few little stats for you coming up next. Don't go away. With Michael Brown. Text the word Michael Michael to 33103. Go to michaelsaysgohere.com to follow me on social media and do all that other stuff. So right now, both in the United States and, and all around the, the, the world, we're beginning to see the flaws of government-run health care. And it's becoming more and more evident. And there is a push for, in this country, universal health care. Medicare for all is what they're calling it. Well, socialized medicine. Simply put, it's socialized medicine. And we see the bureaucrats here pushing for it. Now, we can look beyond our borders. We can look across the pond, across the Atlantic, at a nation much smaller than ours, Great Britain, United Kingdom. National Review's John Fund and David Simon have a story out in which they report this, Medicare for all, would harm and perhaps kill many Americans. That's a pretty bold statement to make. You mean providing health care at the federal level to Medicare for all, for everybody, for all 329 million Americans, might actually kill Americans? How could that possibly be true? Well, that's why we look across the pond. Just look at the pain and suffering that England's version of single-payer, the National Health Service, is inflicting on patients in that country. I was astonished at these stats. 
The National Health Service itself reports. This is not some other study. This comes from the National Health Service, i.e. Medicare for All, in the United Kingdom. As of November of 2022, what? I know that's ancient history, but what? Three, four months ago? 2.9 million of the 7.2 million patients in the National Health Service that were referred for treatment waited more than 18 weeks to even start the treatment. So let's just say, for example, let's just take a, you know, really cruel example. You're diagnosed with, I don't know, some stage of some sort of cancer. And they want to start chemotherapy. They want to start treatment. So you find out about it on Saturday, February 4. And 18 weeks later, on average, that's when you start the treatment. How much does that cancer metastasize? Or, because of the lack of chemotherapy, or whatever other kind of treatment, blood transfusions, whatever, leukemia, do you end up dying? Now, the 7.2 million patients that the National Health Service reported waited more than 18 months. I'm sorry, 18 weeks to start. More than 450,000 patients waited more than 12 months to start treatment. Now, the National Health Service acknowledges that these results don't meet its standards. <laughs> really? Um, that's good to know. So the next time you hear people talking about Medicare for all, a nation that's smaller than ours can't do it. How in the hell can we do it? Healthcare for all, socialized medicine, just doesn't. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Hey, welcome back to The Weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. I sincerely am. I don't say that just to say it. I, I'm... I'm genuinely happy to have you with me. The rules of engagement with this program are pretty simple. You simply uh, text the word Mike or Michael to 33103, 33103. If you want to follow me on social media, Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, you want to follow, you want to um, stream the program live, you want to download the podcast, you want to see some of the stories that I talked about during the week, uh, what else can you do there? You, this year's Michael's Merch. If you want to um, find the affiliate in your local area that carries the program and what time of day they carry it or which day they carry it, you can do all that by simply going to this one website. It's a one-size-fits-all. MichaelSaysGoHere.com. MichaelSaysGoHere.com. The, the Project Veritas, James O'Keefe, whom I, I have to admit I'm not a uh, – religious fanatic about James O'Keefe and the work that he does. I find it 
generally interesting. Sometimes it's like a little, okay, you're trying a little too hard. And then every once in a while, he hits a home run. And this latest episode, if you, I'm sure, I hope you've heard about it. If you haven't heard about it, let me tell you briefly. James O'Keefe is well known for kind of gonzo journalism in, in this sense. He's taken the modern version of journalism, video, and he's turned it into you're on hidden, you're on hidden camera, you're on hidden. What was it called? You're, there was some show. Uh, you're on hidden camera, and what he does is they they target, and I think that's the appropriate word. They'll target an individual in hopes of getting that individual to say, unbeknownst to them, as they're being recorded say things that they wouldn't otherwise say in public that, you know, maybe tell the truth. And the most recent episode of James O'Keefe's episodes is getting a top-level C-suite scientist, doctor, whatever he is, biochemist, something, from Pfizer. Yes, Pfizer. This program brought to you by Pfizer. Every freaking program on television is brought to you by Pfizer. And he got this guy to confess he was ostensibly going on a blind date. (laughs) Don't, let me just say, one, don't go on blind dates. Two, don't start telling proprietary secrets to a blind date. I don't care if your mother arranged that blind date for you. You don't know who you're talking to. So this guy meets up with another guy at a coffee shop. I think it was it, it was somewhere near Pfizer's offices in Manhattan. And trying to, he claims, in hindsight, he was just trying to impress this guy. But he starts telling all the things about what Pfizer's doing in terms of gain-to-function research and how it's skirting the law in all these different countries and how, you know, they knew that the vaccine and I, I'm specifically using the term vaccine now because that's the term he used, that our vaccine really didn't, you know, didn't operate as a vaccine. It was more, you know, more like just a, a medication. So he's making, he's making all of these admissions about all the things wrong with Pfizer and how Pfizer has ripped off the taxpayers, continues to rip off the taxpayers, how it's worth just you know, billions and billions of dollars to them. And then, when, and then James O'Keefe famously always walks in with an iPad in which they've been recording the video and the sound. And James O'Keefe always walks up to the target and says, hi, my name is James O'Keefe with Project Veritas. I'd like to ask you about what you just said in this video. And there's that moment where the person is trying to make his brain work. Like, oh my God, what was I just saying? And this is on video. Oh my God, I'm in deep doo-doo. And the guy goes ballistic, tells the coffee shop owners to lock the doors. Now, I, why, I, for the life of me, don't get that response. But lock me in this room, in this coffee shop with these guys who have just caught me giving away proprietary secrets and proprietary information about my company and how we're ripping off the American taxpayers and they're paying for all the profits that we're making and blah, 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 and the vaccines don't work and everything else. And 
as he realizes, as he's screaming and hollering and he's trying to he's trying to knock the iPad out, as if that's going to, what I find funny is he's trying to destroy James O'Keefe's iPad as if that's the only place that video re- resides. Well, no, they've got it back in the truck where they've been recording it. They've just downloaded James O'Keefe's iPad. So you can smash the iPad all you want. The Internet's forever. And it's going to be there. But the guy goes crazy. And he's screaming and yelling, and he finally, you know, when he, once he realizes that he's kind of caught, it's like, I was just trying, I was just lying. I was just trying to impress this guy. I was just trying to, I was just trying to get in his pants. I was just trying to get on, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was just, it's hilarious. I don't feel sorry for him whatsoever. I, I, I have no sympathy for this guy whatsoever. But it's kind of what, it, what, what that video has done. Is it has brought Pfizer and all of the stupid stuff that we did during during COVID, and it's brought it's brought it back to the forefront. And I, I and and I congratulate James James O'Keefe for doing that because we cannot let what has happened to us over the past two plus almost three years go without understanding how it happened, why it happened, and like people like to say, which drives me nuts, so that it never happens again. Or so at least we're aware of it if they start trying to do it to us again. How the response to COVID affected people at a personal level is absolutely amazing when you hear the stories of how it affected individuals. Before we jump to that, though, I feel obligated, my local listeners and Colorado, or those of you who listen to me during the week will know. This is where I have to give the caveat. I'm not anti-vax. I am anti-fraud, but I'm not anti-vax. And in fact, when the COVID so-called vaccines came out, my wife and I got our appointments. We dutifully got our two shots of Moderna. And I have to confess, I've, you know, knock on for Micah here. I haven't gotten COVID. I haven't been sick in three years. I haven't had anything. I haven't had the snivels. I haven't had I haven't had anything. Now you could say, well, that's because you you got the vaccine, you got the shot. Well, maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I don't know. What I do know is this: everything that I've learned about it since then. I kind of regret having gotten it. We don't know what the long-term effects are. These shots that people are still getting are still under emergency use authorization. And now we're starting to see, I think, some of the long-term effects. The story of the pilot that had, uh, that slumped over and died in the cockpit. A pilot that, on a flight from Denver to Dallas or Denver to Houston somewhere, gets off the plane and and has a heart attack after he lands. The FAA suddenly changing the regulations about what pilots can inject into themselves and not inject into themselves. And I'm also reminded of it because here in in the iHeart building in Denver, on the third floor that I broadcast from on the weekend, I noticed last weekend, so I knew I wanted to talk about it this weekend, there's still a sign up 
both in the men's room and in the little kitchen area. How to prevent the spread of COVID. And then also what to do if you suspect that someone has COVID. Are we to, are we to rat on them? Is there some super secret telephone number I call that says, hey, I think, psst, I think so-and-so's got the COVID. Oh, my God. It has turned us into a bunch of little Stasi spying on each other. So several of the reporters, scientists, epidemiologists, and others that write, doctors, others that write about COVID that I subscribe to, some of them have put together different stories about how the response to COVID has affected us at a personal level. You may also recall that President Biden announced uh, this past week, even though he had already told um, Scott Pelley at CBS's 60 Minutes that the pandemic was over, he nonetheless announced that, oh, I'm going to end all of the COVID emergencies, and I'm going to do that um, Sometime in May, I forget when it was, but he's going to do it sometime in May. And I found that fascinating because it's like, why wait? Why do you have to wait until then? Then after announcing that he was going to end the emergency orders, because remember, there are state emergency orders, there are federal emergency orders. So after he announced that he was going to end the federal emergency orders in May, May, let's just pick a number, May May 15th. I don't know what the exact date was. But then he reversed himself and he said this. What's behind your decision to end the COVID emergency? The COVID emergency will end you the Supreme Court ends it. We've extended to May the 15th to make sure we get everything done. That's all. There's nothing behind it. Right? No, there's nothing behind it. Uh, it's, it's actually going to end when the Supreme Court says it's over. What do you mean it's going to end when the Supreme Court says it's over? You implemented it. You can reverse it. And while you're why you are waiting until May fifteenth for the life of me makes no sense whatsoever. We have to get prepared for the emergency to end. We have to stock up on masks. We have to burn our own old masks. What? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But then I'm talking about Joe Biden, so we shouldn't be surprised. But the scars, the scars that have been left on, I don't want to say all of us, but the scars that have been left on a lot of people because of the response to COVID, are truly incomprehensibly deep and varied. Now, for most, there hasn't been enough time to mentally process the significance of those initial lockdowns, let alone the years-long slog of mandates, terror, propaganda, social uh, social stigmatizing, the censorship. This is nothing more than psychological trauma. And it affects people in myriad ways that actually leave me wondering, what is it about life that just just feels so off versus how it felt in 2019? You still occasionally see a coworker or someone in a restaurant where nobody else is wearing a mask, but that person is. I've had to train my brain to to not immediately assume that they're paranoid or that they are crazy or that, they're, that they've been brainwashed. 
Now I try to rationalize. I actually try to rationalize. Oh, maybe they have a comorbidity. Maybe they live with someone that has cancer, that has some, you know, or maybe they live with a loved one and they they can't afford to bring anything home. It's funny how the brain works when you start trying to rationalize things. But for those of us that were following the real data, the statistics were always horrifying. Trillions of dollars rapidly transferred from the world's poorest to the richest. Hundreds of millions of people hungry, countless years of educational attainment lost, an entire generation of rugrats and kids, even adolescents, robbed of some of the brightest years. A mental health crisis that now affects more than a quarter of the American population. Fully 25% of Americans are suffering from some sort of mental health crisis. I started to say mental illness, but I don't don't think it's a mental health crisis. Think about all that stuff going on. Listen to some of the stats coming up next. But before that, if you are a loved one, now look, I, I can still carry firearms for self-defense. But if you want to exercise self-defense, but you're uncomfortable carrying a firearm, you've got to learn about Hero's non-lethal product. Hero 2020 is the maker of both the Hero 2020 product, the original looking gun, and a new product called the Arrow. It looks like a small remote control. But both of these devices shoot thid, a thick red sticky pepper gel that creates this intense burning sensation on skin contact. It causes your assailant to just drop writhing in pain, gives you time to escape the situation, gives you time to call 911, gives you time to protect yourself. Both of these products are concealable. You don't need a carry permit. They're both non-lethal, and they allow you to defend yourself from a distance. I've gotten them for friends and family. I want you to get one today for yourself maybe a spouse, a loved one, someone who wants to defend themselves but is uncomfortable carrying a gun. So do this. Go online right now to Hero2020.com. That's Hero2020.com. Check out both the original Hero and the Arrow. And then put in my last name, Brown, for a special discount. That's Hero2020.com. State restrictions may apply. Some of these horrific stories coming up next. Welcome back to the weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. I get the biggest kick out of text messages. So I was having a senior moment, brain fart, trying to remember the name of the program where they were video people doing stupid things off air. I mean, off off camera. And then they'd walk in with the camera. Candid camera. So somebody wrote, um, Michael, the answer to your senior moment is candid camera. Alan Funt didn't have to Google that. Well, good for you. You're not having a brain fart today. So back to the COVID. The impact that it had on people is, I think, just unbelievably horrific. Some of the stories that people have told to different doctors 
and they've been collected by these reporters around the country, are really amazing. As I said, we had an entire generation of children that were robbed of some of the most formative years of their childhood. We got drug overdoses. We have hospital abuse, elder abuse, domestic abuse, millions of excess deaths among young people, which couldn't be attributed to the virus. So if it's not attributed to the virus, what's causing all these excess deaths? You know, we, we keep track. If you've heard me explain this before, bear with me one more time. We track all the deaths in this country. Well, you get a death certificate. Death certificate usually, you know, will put on, put the, the medical examiner or the attending physician will put on there the cause of the death the primary cause and the secondary causes, the underlying causes. Well, so we know on average, let's just say there are a million deaths a month in this country, just for round, just to pull a number out of my butt. So a million deaths a month in this country. But suddenly we're seeing that that number is exceeding that average. Well, what's causing these excess deaths to occur? Under the statistics are all these human stories with these different, unique perspectives. So I just pulled out a few of them. So when we get back, I just want you to hear a few of the different stories that people have told some of these doctors and some of these epidemiologists and researchers about the effects that's had on them. And then ask yourself, after you hear some of these stories, was it worth it? Was it? What did we accomplish? We'll do that next. Don't go away. Tonight, Michael Brown joins me here. The former FEMA director. Talk show host, Michael Brown. Brownie. Now. Brownie, you're doing a heck of a job. The Weekend with Michael Brown. Welcome back to the weekend with Michael Brown. Glad to have you with me. Remember, you can always text the word Mike or Michael and your message to 33103. 33103. And you can always go to this website to follow me on social media and um, find out where your local affiliate is when they air the program, download the podcast, do all of that by simply going to michaelsaysgohere.com. michaelsaysgohere.com. So, one of the epidemiologist that I follow on Twitter asked this question on Twitter the other day. Which aspect of the response to COVID affected you the most at a personal level? Now, I didn't gather, I I didn't bookmark every single response to that tweet that he did. But some of them were very poignant. And some of them kind of gives us, you know, I I think every once in a while, no matter what the topic is or what's going on in the world that occasionally it's it's a, always good to stop look over your shoulder and think about where you've been only then can you really truly understand where you're going otherwise you're just wandering aimlessly that's why history is so important and that's why I think whatever inquiries that Congress makes whatever inquiry scientists make, whatever inquiry journalists make, 
in terms of finding out the origins of COVID, the response to COVID, the effects of COVID, the the efficacy of the of the shots of the mRNA so-called vaccines. All of that's important. Because as the world gets more and more populated, and we live to some degree in more and more urban areas, the more likely that, you know, disease flows through the through civilization much more rapidly than it did even during the Spanish flu. But I want you to listen to some of these responses because I, I just found them so poignant. Mark tweeted back, watching the last remnants of my belief in democracy get peeled away, seeing the collusion across the globe roll out in lockstep made me realize just how powerful and comprehensively in control those that orchestrate the darkness are. Wow. You could take that to so many different topics and apply that very same concept. The forces of darkness and how they orchestrate, how they work. That's why oftentimes people say, why do I refer to it as the cabal? Because it is an unholy alliance between the dominant media, the ruling elite, and the tech giants to control what we read, what we hear, what, to a certain degree, how we form our opinions. Because one of the things that makes this country great among all other countries in the world is the First Amendment, freedom of speech, the clash of ideas, the free flow of ideas, and the willingness, which I think we're losing to some degree in this country, the willingness to hear contradictory opinions and to at least consider opinions that might differ from ourselves or from our own. So the fact that this one person said, watching the last remnants of my belief in democracy get peeled away and seeing the collusion, because it was, it was collusion around the globe. Many of us just want to put our blinders on and forget about that. I know there was fear. I understand there was fear. You don't think that I didn't experience a fear? Like, what the, what the hell's really going on here? Because I'm talking, I'm talking to all the doctors that I know. Some that teach, some that are well, they're, they're, they've since retired, but taught at Harvard Medical School, taught, taught at the Harvard School of Public Health. Hey, tell me. Tell me what's, what do you really think about this? Off the record, tell me what you think. A doctor replied to the tweet. The realization that ne- nearly everyone I knew would give up, before I tell you what he said, Let me just emphasize, this is a doctor. Not that that should make any difference. But what I'm about to tell you what he said, you may think, well, that sounds like a conservative talk show host. That sounds like, you know, some politician. That sounds like, you know, some nut job. No, this this is a doctor. And the aspect of the response to COVID that affected him at the most personal level was this. The realization that nearly everyone that I knew would give up literally all of their individual rights for the illusion of safety. You know, we're still getting studies out about the non-efficacy of masks. And it's not surprising to me that masks became such a flashpoint in the pandemic. Because even a dumbass lawyer like me 
that barely got a B in biology pretty much understands how viruses work. I still remember, you know, undergraduate biology classes. Still remember high school biology classes. Had one of the best biology teachers you could ever have. He was absolutely wonderful. And to this day, that knowledge is stuck with me. And so as I, as I would hear about, you know, even the N95 masks, unless they're properly fitted, and even then they don't necessarily provide you efficacy against contracting the virus. But oh no, we were told that was it. And everyone complied. And to the extent that you tried to engage in some sort of civil dis- disobedience by not wearing a mask, you were, you were, might as well go to the leper colony. PhD wrote this. How my friends, including many colleague historians who know very well the history of the 20th century, proved ready to believe any propaganda to refrain from questioning the government, the government nonsense and to public shame anyone who did. It's as if all the studies we led were for naught. I think for me personally, that was one of the most troubling things of the pandemic. Oh, you have a different theory? Well, you're a heretic. Oh, you have a different theory about what, or, or you have a different uh, treatment protocol? You have a different idea about whether people should be ventilated or not ventilated because this, after all, is, is a respiratory virus. So maybe you're exacerbating and making the respiratory problems even worse by intubating someone. Oh, you can't, you can't have those thoughts. It was the cabal at its best slash worst. And what do I mean by its worst? It was at its best because that's what the cabal does. It was at its worst because that's what the cabal does. Another person wrote, how easily people were propagandized, particularly people who I thought carried the ability to properly scrutinize the situation. Frankly, it was downright chilling how easily people fell in line. No question how the Nazis were able to control their populace. Fear. Too many of us, and I know it's human nature, and I'm not judging, too many people live their life in fear. No, nobody wants to lose their job. Nobody wants to go hungry. Nobody wants to lose their shelter, their home. Nobody wants to lose their, their ability to provide for their family. No, nobody wants to. But too many people go through their life living in such fear of loss that they fail to live. And I think that was one of the things that stuck out with me about COVID. I know at least here in particularly rural Colorado, people were just, people went about living their lives. But in the urban area, along the Front Range in the Denver metropolitan area, oh, the fear was palpable, absolutely palpable. And it was felt, it was fed by a local news media, it was fed by a governor, it was felt, it was fed by state legislators. Instead, it was fed by a public health so-called expert that I think is just dumber than a box of rocks. But oh my God, people, held, people hung on every word that she had to say. Don't hear from her anymore. Another person wrote, everything 
Remember, the question is, in terms of the pandemic, which aspect of the response to COVID affected you most at a personal level? Closures. My business was thrown for a loop. The outlets I used to deal with depression, like the gym or going for coffee with friends, were closed. And it was beyond hard to get through the day with everything going on and no outlet to deal with any of it. Just talking about it is still traumatic. We did that to people. We're social animals. It's it's why we live in, even if it's a rural area, even in the most rural areas, there's still a general store and there's still probably a post office and there's still a, you know, a place where people gather for a little cafe or something because we're, we're basically social animals. Even if you're like me and you hate people, you still, you're still, we're still social animals. Another person wrote everything by my business that I spent 30 years building hasn't recovered and is unlikely to recover. I used to have health insurance and save money. Had to cancel the insurance, and I'm using my savings to top up income. I'm not the worst off by far, but it was criminal. It was criminal. And the quicker Congress spends serious time doing a serious investigation, putting it above politics, and instead looking at the science, looking at what the FDA did, looking at what NIH did, looking at how we funded some of this gain of function, which is outlawed, by the way. How do, we, how do we allow NIH to skirt federal law and to give grant, to give a grant, to give a grant, so that you got three, four, five, six degrees of separation? But yet it was our tax dollars. Another person wrote this. Lockdown equaled no income, no home, health declined, mental health declined. Didn't see my family or friends for years. Changed my life for the worse. Not sure I will get to have kids now. I'd like to be who I was before lockdowns and for my life to be what it was. The fatalistic side of me says that's never going to happen because it will always be this dark imprint on our soul and on our collective soul, not just our individual souls. So how do we atone for these mistakes? How do we rectify this? Truth. The disinfectant of truth and our willingness to accept truth and to hear truth and to, and to test that truth against other people's truth, so to speak. To actually get back to a scientific method. The restrictions on travel and rules governing visiting patients in the hospital. You know, this one hit home for me because a friend of mine whose wife was ill to begin with. She had a comorbidity, but she was dying of this rare disease, not COVID. But her family wasn't allowed to be with her on her deathbed. She died alone in a hospital, looking at her children and her husband on FaceTime. How more cruel can we get and how more can we get to the point where we believe that it is so dangerous that you 
which I always found fascinating. You allow a nurse to scrub in and you allow a nurse to suit up or a doctor to suit up and go into that patient's room, that wife and that mother's room. You allow that doctor and nurse to do so, but the husband can't go scrub up. The husband can't go put on the booties, can't go put on the suit, and can't go in and be with his dying wife. It's sick. It's truly, truly sick what we allowed to happen. One more. Not being able to visit my dad in the hospitals. He lay dying until the last couple of days when he was so far gone that he didn't know what was going on. Having my mom locked up in an assisted living center, not being able to hug her or talk to her except by phone through a closed window, all while healthcare workers traipsed in and out unmolested. I was so angry. The lies, the segregation, the exclusion, the tribalism, the darkness of it all. It just goes on and on. Pretty serious topic, you know, especially for a weekend. But you got to think about it because you can't let it happen again. And even if there's another pandemic that comes along, we've got to learn from this one so that our response doesn't destroy the humanity in all of us. Hang tight. I'll be right back. Here we go. Welcome back to the weekend with Michael Brown. What a great conclusion to this weekend program. So Damien and I are talking during the break, and Damien asks me, so why are we shooting this stupid Chinese balloon down? And now, I, I'm not going to tell you what channel it's on. I'm not going to tell you what channel he was watching yet. Um, but we're both limited in what we can see right now. So I'm telling Damien, I tell Damien, why, why are we shooting it down? And I said, because we're so afraid the politicians are so afraid that if they shoot it down, that some debris might hit some knucklehead on the head and give him a headache, or it might actually kill somebody, and then that will be the political controversy that we'll have to hear for the rest of the year. And it's only February, so we'll, have, we'll never hear the end of it. I said, the other reason I think that we're not shooting it down is because we're actually afraid of the Chinese Communist Party, and we're afraid of Xi Jinping, the emperor for life now of China, because he is the Hitler of, of, of the 21st century. He truly is. If you, don't, if, you don't, if you think I'm being outrageous about that, by that comment, look at what he's doing with the Uyghurs. Then I just happened to look up, and in my studio, it's on Fox News, I look up, and the chiron is, Chinese spy balloon just shot down by U.S. missiles. And I can see the fighter jets and the contrails circling the balloon as it descends to Earth. 
Damien, in his studio, is locked on CNN, and he can't change. So CNN hasn't yet reported that they've shot it down. But Fox is zoomed in on it, and they're watching it crash to earth. So now the question becomes, what's next? What happens next? Do we find out that it was, oh, never mind, it was just a weather balloon? No, I don't think there's a chance in hell of that happening. But I hope they take the payload, whatever survives as it floats to the ocean. It's off the coast of the Carolinas. They take whatever's in that payload, and they reverse engineer it. And at some point, I hope they have, you know, like when they have a drug bust, and they show you all the drugs and all the guns they got. I hope they show us everything that was in that payload. And I hope they say to China directly, looking into the TV cameras, we got your stuff. We reversed engineer it. We know how it works. Don't ever, ever do this again. And then Damien and I both laughed at ourselves and thought, no, these knuckleheads won't do that. They don't have the, they don't have the cojones to do that. So the Chinese spy balloon is coming to Earth as this is being broadcast live. When you hear it, maybe we'll hope we'll know more about it. Hey, thanks for tuning in this weekend. I appreciate everybody tuning in. Remember, you can you can continue to text the word Mike to 33103. Hang tight. I'll talk to you next weekend. Take care. 